Well, good morning, and uh, or namaste, and uh, to those online, welcome. Uh, how good is it to be together, to encourage each other? The sun's out; it's not storming on us. I know a few of us uh, are dealing with uh, things from last night and wet carpets and and other floods. Who had uh, trouble last night in the storm? Anyone? I know John did up the back there, and we did. You know, you guys. Okay. Uh, well, I might pray for God's mercy as we come to God's word, though. How good is it to be able to be encouraged by him? Our Father, you are powerful and faith comes from hearing. And so teach us to respond in true faith as we hear today from your scriptures and help us grasp that it's never too late, that no one is so far away from you that they can't, uh, that you can't open their eyes to trust you. And Father, we pray with those who are mopping up today, that you'll be with them, help them to be uh, calm, uh, and we pray that you'll provide all they need. Amen. Well, our purpose today is to understand that uh, how it is that someone comes to faith in the true and living God, whatever starting point they may be at. Uh, the man in question in our passage is Jethro. He is Moses' father-in-law, and it happens at a family reunion. Uh, you've already, already been planning your family gatherings for this Christmas, uh, sharing some quality time with the people in your life, uh, some of whom don't yet know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here's hope. As God takes someone whose whole life has been a complete denial of God and uses a family member to bring him to faith toward the end of his life. I mean, we know he's very elderly. He's Moses' father-in-law. Moses is 80-something at this point. So dad's got to be getting... He would have got his letter from the queen. <laughs> it's, it's a strange little interlude in the book of Exodus because uh, it's been the epic sweeping story so far, hasn't it, of how God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt with great power how he dismantled one of the world's greatest empires economically, militarily, socially and spiritually. We, we've seen how he saved his people using the plagues and the Passover, how he led them with a pillar of fire and cloud, how he made a safe path through the middle of the ocean, how he provided miraculously for them with food and water in the wilderness and, and won the battle for them. And next week we'll come to Mount Sinai where the people are going to meet with God and he will establish his covenant with them, calling Israel to be his special people, his holy nation. But this whole epic story is interrupted by this personal moment between Moses and his father-in-law. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange little thing, isn't it? Uh, and you might think, well, maybe Moses, when he sat down to, to write the book of Exodus, uh, at some point later in life, was scrolling through his phone photos, uh, looking for the really important bits. And uh, you know when you want to show someone a cool photo and you have to get through, oh, you go, oh, sorry, that's the kids on the beach. Uh, uh, that, sorry, that's my thumb when I accidentally had it in front of the camera. Oh, that's, that's the selfie I took in front of the big banana. You know, I go, oh, here we go. Here's the, here's the bit. Mount Sinai, here we are. Um, but it's not like that. Moses was very deliberate as he wrote this book. Uh, 
to, and it's a, it's a testimony of God's interaction with his people, how he saved them, how he established his covenant with them. So why, why this bit here before we get to God's big deal with the nation that he saved? And, and I've got three reasons that I can think of. First, it shows, that, uh, it shows Israel what true faith looks like. What he's, he shows his people what real faith is. Uh, remember so far what their attitude to God has been like, though he saved them. They've been, well, unbelieving. God saved them in extraordinary ways. They come to the next obstacle, and what do they say every time? <laughs> they whinge, they moan, they spout their distrust in God. And they say, we wish we'd never been saved, or we wish we'd died back there. At least we had food back there. Now, this man is nothing like that. He comes to a genuine, joyful trust in God that changes everything for him. The second reason, is, I think, is here to show Israel that God has intentions beyond themselves for the nations of the world. They're not the only ones God's interested in saving, which is a great thing for us here on the other side of the world thousands of years later. And so third, I think it's also here to help us, help, sorry, help Israel understand God's intentions for their role in the world when he says to them in the next chapter, uh, which we'll see next week, although the whole earth is mine and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation, Israel, I'm calling you to be my representatives, my agents to the nations. Uh, a priest in the Old Testament, or in Old Testament terms, is someone who, who stands between God and the people, who represents God to the people, but also represents the people to God. That's what a, a priest's role is in the Old Testament. Uh, they stand in the gap. And so it's fascinating that this guy who comes to faith in this little interlude isn't just any foreigner, but he is himself a priest, not just a priest, uh, well, sorry, he's not a priest of the true and living God, though. He's the pagan leader, as it turns out, of a crazy cult. He's a cult leader. He's David Koresh. Uh, verse 1, have a look. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for God's people Israel when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Who's this guy? Well, we're told two things about him. One, he's Moses' father-in-law. Uh, we met him very briefly back in chapter 2, which was about 40 years ago in the story. Remember, Moses had fled from Egypt to escape arrest for murder. He'd run into the wilderness on the other side of the Red Sea where the people are now travelling. Uh, along the way, he happened to scare off some rat bags, giving some pretty girls a hard time. And as a thank you for saving his daughters, Jethro had offered one of them to Moses as his wife, uh, the lovely Zipporah. But there's a second thing to know about Jethro. He's described as a priest of Midian. Now, what's that and why is that important? Well, the Midianites were a people group who lived in this wilderness around Mount Sinai. Uh, they, uh, we find out in Numbers chapter 25 that their religion was one of the most immoral, superstitious and indulgent religions of the ancient world. 
The God they worship, we find out in Numbers 25, is the Baal of Peor. It's one of the Baals uh, and a particularly nasty one. Uh, in fact, he was a Moabite god uh, who the Midianites had adopted. They lived amongst Moabite territory. Uh, and the way they worshipped the Baal of Peor was in orgies and in other weird cultic rituals. Uh, in fact, if you're familiar with the book of Numbers, it's Midianite women who are the ones who come into the Israelite camp and invite anyone and everyone to come and enjoy their bodies. And they do. Uh, but it's all in worship of the Baal of Peor and Israel are led into the worship of the Baal of Peor and as a result, God's judgment comes on both Israel and on Midian there. And so here's Jethro and he's one of their high priests. So how did this weird cult leader uh, become a worshipper of the true and living God? Well, I want to say it happens as it normally happens in the world, in God's providence, through someone else, through a believer, sharing the good news with them. In this case, through a conversation with his son-in-law, Moses. Now, we hear, before we hear that conversation and, and see how it is that Jethro was changed, Notice that Moses' witness to him actually had started years and years before through his own family life. Uh, you can see it in the way that he named his children. Uh, verse 2, Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken in Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, along with her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, because Moses had said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land and the other Eliezer, because he'd said, the God of my father was my helper and rescued me from Pharaoh's sword. Now, I'm not sure that naming his children Gershom and Eliezer while living with his in-laws in Midian was one of the most tactical moves that a son-in-law had ever made. Uh, you know how in-laws sometimes express their views about the unusual names that are given to their grandchildren. Uh, I know of one mother-in-law who, when she heard what they'd called her grandson, just blurted out, that's an awful name! <laughs> I think she realised she'd gone too far and it hadn't gone down very well when later on she visited the maternity ward and said, well, I know I said it was an awful name, but now I've seen the baby, I think it really, really suits him. <laughs> So, so what is it about these names that were given this little insight into what they were and why he called them that? Uh, that might have raised some eyebrows with his relatives. Well, if you look at the footnote there in your Bible, you'll see that Gershon means a stranger there. In other words, I don't belong here. Outsider. Foreigner. And it could be that Moses was just reflecting on his own situation, not being at home in Egypt because he'd escaped. Uh, but I take it from what he names his second son, that actually he's reflecting more on the promise that God made to Abraham, the founder of Israel, that God made to bring Abraham's descendants, Israel, that one day he would bring them to the promised land in Canaan, which is where they're heading now. Moses had always been a resident in a foreign land, even where he grew up. And so he names his son Gershom. And as if that didn't cause unhappiness 
calling you know, the kid foreigner, outsider, <laughs> while living with your in-laws. Um, yeah. uh, the second son's born and he's named Eliezer, which again in the footnote says, what does that mean? It means, my God is help. My God is help. The explanation that Moses gives is because um, he got away from the Egyptian hit squad, now, Pharaoh's henchmen all those years ago. So imagine Sunday lunch with the in-laws. Jethro, the pagan priest of this weird cult, and his wife, uh, we haven't got her name. There's, there's Moses, who's the prince who's turned ref, um, uh, 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 fugitive. There's Zipporah, Moses' feisty wife. We've already seen her in action uh, through the book. And there are two kids, outsider, and my God is help. <laughs> and Jethro says, can you pass the salt, outsider? <laughs> Would you like some cheese with that? My God is help. <laughs> uh, but Moses' family life is crying out to Jethro that he has a different God. Um, he's, he's living by faith, even amongst his wife's pagan, unbelieving family. He's got a different set of values, a different hope, a different ambition for his kids, different hopes for the future than the pagan culture around about him. It's interesting, we went to a kids' assembly up at the high school a few days ago, and a kid got announced, Leviticus. And like, I bet that's a Christian family who named their son. I wouldn't pick that one out of this better Bible book names, but but it says something, doesn't it? I'm not saying that's necessarily the way to go, but but it's 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 a good thing. But now we're here, 40 years later, in chapter 18, and God's been delivering on His promises, and they're travelling back through Midianite territory, close to Jethro's home, on their way to the land that God had promised. And at some point, we're not told when, Moses sends Zipporah and the kids to visit Nanny and Poppy. And like all grandparents, I imagine they asked all the standard questions of their grandchildren. What have you been eating? Well, we've been getting home delivery uh, of these delicious birds that just fly in every day and land here uh, and this wonderful honey bread that just appears every morning, you know, kind of thing. Uh, they invented Uber back then, Uber, or Uber Eats. Uh, and they said, well, uh, <coughs> what, what exciting things have you been up to? Um, and Eliezer says, well, I know Dad might have given me a weird name, but you should have been there, Papa, over the last few weeks. We've seen Daddy's God doing amazing things. I wish you'd been with us. If they'd had mobile phones, they would have picked them up and brought up pictures of blood and frogs helping everywhere and boils that the neighbours' kids have that they didn't have and <laughs> the locusts and, and, and the hail. You know, this size, you know, Grandad. You could hear Gershom telling Grandma, as boys do, stories about the frogs leaping out of the swamp to terrorise God's enemies. Uh, but even at that point, Jethro's not convinced. He wants to see for himself, hear it from the horse's mouth. And so verse 6, he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and then kissed him. I don't think that's necessarily the way that we have to go this Christmas with the in-laws. 
they might have been hoping that you would prostrate yourself on the ground and kiss their feet, but it's a cultural thing. A hug will probably do this Christmas. They asked each other how they'd been and went into the tent. Now, wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall as the father and son-in-law sat down at the dinner table over a glass of the finest Nile Delta Chardonnay or you know, some Cairo bitter or something, and Moses laid out exactly what's been happening. Well, that's what he does, verse 8. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord, that's Yahweh, their God, had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that confronted them on the way and how the Lord had rescued them. I think that's a pretty good model for us, don't you reckon? What is Moses doing? He's telling his father-in-law, the pagan priest, about how good his God is, how powerful he is, how wonderful he is. He'd left Midian all those years ago, you remember, to go back to Egypt reluctant, shaking in his boots, not wanting to do the job that God had given him. But now he's seen God rescue them all with such a wonderful salvation, he can't help talk about it. Jethro, God can be trusted to rescue his people. I wish you'd been there to see how God saved millions of us. Jethro, God can be trusted to destroy his enemies. I wish you'd been there to see his judgment fall on Pharaoh, that wicked king. Jethro, God can be trusted to lead his people. God can be trusted, Jethro, to feed his people even in the desert. Jethro, God can be trusted to keep his people going. At every point, Moses works through the events of history. He's, he's telling Jethro that God can be trusted by a man who'd shaped his whole family life around the promises of God and has now seen God keeping those promises to his people. I think we should take encouragement from that, shouldn't we? Moses might not have done two ways to live or ever been a Christianity Explained group leader, but he knows what God's done to rescue him and he can tell that story. God can be trusted. Right? And I take it that's something we can all do, isn't it? We can say, this is, this is, I've, I've met Jesus, he saved me. And in God's kindness, Jethro is converted. After 40 years of knowing and interacting with Moses, this is the conversation where the penny finally drops. Now, obviously, only God knows the heart of a person. And we don't, we don't find out you know, how he did back when he went back home and... Uh, you know, handed in his preaching license for the Midianite religion and so on, it would have been very difficult. But um, only God knows the heart. But, but he shows all the signs, doesn't he, of becoming a true believer. But uh, uh, That's what I reckon. Let's see what you think. Uh, I'm going to invite you to audience participation. Uh, I want you to sit for a moment as the jury on Jethro's faith. Uh, as I go through the evidence... Uh, I want you to ask, do, do you think 
that we're going to meet Jethro in heaven. Right? Let's go through the signs, the signs, the marks of whether he's a true believer or not. Let's have a look. The first sign or first mark is, is his joy. He's just so glad to hear about what God has done. See there, verse 9, Jethro rejoiced over all the good things that the Lord had done for Israel. I mean, the Israelites aren't even his people except by his daughter's marriage, but he's thrilled for them. Not just that they're safe, he's glad for that, but look, he's thrilled that God was the one who saved them. It's joy con directly connected to knowing that what this God has done. In verse 10, there's a second mark. He prays. And what a prayer. It's a, it, he's praising God, acknowledging him, thanking him for this wonderful gift of salvation. You see there, verse 10? Blessed be the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of Pharaoh. He's rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. And it's interesting because it's almost precisely the same words back in Exodus 3 when God told Moses at the burning bush that he would deliver his people, Israel, from under the power of the Egyptians and under the power of Pharaoh. And here is another man praying that. You can imagine Moses all those years ago going back to Jethro from the burning bush and saying to him, oh, by the way, I'm taking Zipporah and the kids back to Egypt because God's promised me that he'll deliver all the people from under the power of the Egyptians and the power of Pharaoh and Jethro probably choked on his coffee. <laughs> what with my grandkids? <laughs> all right, you're going to die. <laughs> um, and then he probably wouldn't have had a good whinge to the missus. Uh, you'll never know what that wretched man is going to do with our grandkids. You've got to stop him. But now in verse 10, God has delivered as he said he would and Jethro is praying, thanking the God of Israel for doing what he said he would and saving them. Is that the mark of a true believer? I reckon. Then there's verse 11, which I think is the third mark, because he's not just thanking and praising this other God, but he is Jethro rejecting the false gods which he has previously worshipped. Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all the other gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. Isn't that the mark of a true believer? Isn't, how, isn't that how the Apostle Paul describes those early believers uh, in, uh, in Thessalonica? Uh, everyone reports how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. There's, a, there's at least something of that, isn't there, in verse 11 there. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. So he rejoices in God's salvation. He's praying to this God. He's praising him for his greatness. He's rejecting his own gods. But then in verse 12, he keeps going by offering sacrifices. And it's not a multi-faith service like you might see at the Vatican these days. Uh, it cannot be that because in verse 12, Moses and all the elders of Israel are there too, eating bread with Jethro. 
And the burnt offering that he brings is an offering of thanksgiving in response to what God has done rather than try and manipulate God into doing something. That's what pagan religions are doing these days uh, and back then and Baal worshippers were doing. They're trying to twist God's arm by sacrifice, by cutting, by rituals into getting God to do something by them, by sacrifices and so on. This isn't that. It's an offering of thanksgiving in response to what God has already done. And isn't that what we're called to do, though we don't do it with animals, do we? What's the kind of sacrifice of thanksgiving that we offer to God now as people saved by Jesus? What do we offer? Hey, a contrite and broken heart, we offer, yeah, we offer ourselves, don't we? Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice because of what God's already done, the mercies of God. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. We say to God, you've saved me, I'm yours. Do with me as you will. I, I want to live for you now. I wasn't before, but you've saved me, so take me, use me. And interesting enough, as that passage in Romans goes on, the rest of the chapter is about uh, particular examples of how to do that. And what does he say? He says, use your God-given gifts and talents to start serving. That's a part of how you worship God, how you offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. You know, if your gift is leading, lead. If it's hospitality, be hospitable. If it's, you know, giving, give. He goes on this whole list. And isn't that exactly what Jethro does at the end of the chapter? He's using his gifts now to serve God's people. He's got a lot of years of experience leading people in false religion but now he's going to do something useful for god's people that he's from what he's learned he's going to uh, use something of that to be a blessing and benefit to israel and to his son-in-law who's led him to faith just 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 then he, he can see that the the toll that leading a couple of million people is taking on moses because he hasn't set up any sort of system of government or leadership to sort out disputes among the people. Uh, and so he's answering every dispute, every call and complaint himself. And so Jethro says, son, you're an idiot. <laughs> uh, he gives him great advice, which God himself is going to endorse in the law that's coming for a multi-tiered system of governing the people well. And and Moses is going to take that advice to heart and act on it, which I think is a pretty humble thing to do right after leading this man to faith. You might think, well, he's only new to to believing in God. What's what's he got to offer that's going to be of use? What have I got to learn from him? But actually, he's got something wise to share and Moses can recognise that. And some of us might need to hear Jethro's advice too. That one guy can't do everything. But this structure isn't just something that will take, just take the load off Moses' shoulder. It's something that's going to set them up well for the future because 
Jethro now knows that God is taking this people to the promised land. And they may just be a couple of million people now. You might think that's a lot. You wait to see as God makes them into the sand on the seashore or the number of stars in the sky, or an uncountable number. How are they going to be governed then while using this structure? And so here's Jethro using his God-given gifts to help Moses get prepared because they take seriously the promises of God. Well, that's the story of how Jethro, the pagan priest, came to faith. In the, in the middle of this epic story of salvation, of how God saved his people, Israel. Uh, I want to conclude by drawing out uh, some lessons for us. I've got five. First one, it's never too late. It's never too late for someone to come to faith. You might have been praying for someone you know for years and years and years. Maybe you've lost hope uh, that it could ever happen. Don't give up. It took Jethro 40 years of interactions with Moses before he came to understand who God was and trust him. Maybe this Christmas as you spend time with the in-laws, as you share something with them of what God has done for you in Jesus, that will be the moment. Wouldn't that be great? And secondly, just as it's never too late, it's also worth grasping that there's no one so stuck in some other culture or way of thinking or wrapped up in some other religion which may have been part of their family upbringing going back generations. Here is one of the high priests of some other religion, right? one of the most disgusting pagan religions of history, and God brought him to repentance and faith and turned him from his idols to serve the true and living God and become part of the family of God. And he is still bringing people from Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and atheism to come and bow before Jesus as the Lord and Saviour. Keep praying for your neighbours, won't you? Third, that also takes us to the purposes of God. Uh, God is the God of the nations, not just the God of this weird little country of Israel. He, he's going to call them to be a kingdom of priests and share his good news with everyone. And here in Jethro's conversion, he is one of the first, if not the first, non-Jew to come to faith in Israel's God and receive the blessing of becoming part of God's people. Fourth, then, how does someone come to faith? You've been praying for it for someone. How's it going to happen? Well, in God's providence, it happens... In 99.9% .9 of cases, through another believer sharing and living out their faith, as Moses did, through speaking about how great God is. You want someone to come to Christ? Well, praying's a good start, right? Because God's the one that's going to do it. Living out your own faith consistently, that's important. A life of thanksgiving and trusting God's word but if they're going to live uh, give their lives to God they need to hear the gospel as our second reading in Romans uh, says uh, faith comes from hearing but how will they hear unless someone speaks 
How beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. Do you have beautiful feet like Moses did? Or will you have beautiful feet like he did? But then finally, number five, there's a lesson for us in what true faith looks like. Does Jethro's newfound faith describe yours? Rejoicing in God's salvation. Praising the God who you now know. Rejecting all the other idols and false ideas of God that uh, our world clings to. Offering the true sacrifice of your life to God in view of his mercy. And using your gifts and your talents to serve. Jethro is totally the opposite of Israel, isn't he? All they've done, now that God saved them, is whinge, complain, right? Wish they were back in slavery. Jethro's response is how they should have responded. Look at what God's done. Look at how amazing he is. Thank him, praise him, trust him, live for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, uh, this little family moment where we can see how amazing you are, that you're concerned for the individual, you're concerned for the outsider. You can bring anyone to faith. It's never too late. Help us to take that to heart. Help us to, to see what true faith is like, that you might enliven our faith, but also teach us to keep sharing this great news of Jesus, our Saviour, uh, because that's the way that other people are going to come to know you and serve you as well. Give us confidence, boldness, humility as we go about that, but help us to be like Moses, so thrilled about what you've done for us that we can't help talking about it. In Jesus' name, amen.